That's why I love worshiping with you guys. Um, it's one of the things that my family and I have loved about just gathering with you um, each Sunday um, over the last year and a half. My family and I, we've been members here now for over a year, and we were missionaries in Uganda and Chad before this, and you guys are going to be sending us out uh, from here in the next several months, and it's, it's things like that that make everything worth it. Coming to gather here and particip participate with you in worship and get just a sliver of what it means to worship in heaven. Like imagine, like that's, that's what the angels are doing all day long from the foundation of the world. <laughs> They're doing that. And we gather here this morning because we get to participate um, with them in that. So my name is Chris. My wife, Rebecca, was just singing here. My kids um, were out there. But we, again, I've, I've been so blessed by Colonial Heights um, Church over the last year. It has been um, a place of rest for my family. And I'm so grateful to you for your kindness and for your, your uh, relationship and grace to us. This morning, we are going to be in John chapter 20. And it's the story of Thomas. So I'm just going to read this for you. John chapter 20, verse 19. You get out your Bibles and you can, can turn there. Verse 19. John says this. He says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Amen. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As we think about the resurrection this morning, there's one phrase that goes through my head right now, and it's that death has lost. In fact, I got a text from Pastor Chad 
And he said, remember, when you preach today, preach like death has lost. And so we'll see if I can live up to that. But truly, this is why we've gathered this morning, is because our God, Christ Jesus, the Son of God, has been risen from the grave. In fact, all of Scripture, all of the Old Testament, everything that comes before this has just been awaiting this day, the resurrection, the coming of the Messiah in Christ. Everyone's waiting for that day when the Christ will appear. Everyone on the other side of history, as we look back, and we're not waiting anymore, we know he's come, we look in wonder and we say, wow, our God is marvelous. And we sing songs like we just did this morning about the glorious throne room, about our God who is and was and is to come. But this morning, our story takes place in between that time of waiting and wonder. Because the waiting, the disciples thought had already been passed, right? Like Christ has come, the Savior is here, this is our guy, but now he's in the grave. What are we doing? What's going on? You can imagine the disciples at this point wondering what happened. There's no wonder early morning on Resurrection Sunday for the disciples. For us, we've come here this morning anticipating that there is something glorious to behold and something glorious to see. But on that morning, it was not so. When Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Joanna and Salome and other women came to the tomb that morning, they came bearing spices and ointment. They were coming to put the finishes touches on a dead corpse. There was mourning on that morning. There was grieving on that morning. There was no anticipation of joy for the disciples as we have this morning. But I wonder if it should have been different. When Jesus was with his disciples, you know, he spent three years with them. He said many things about what he was going to do, what he was going to accomplish. In fact, he spoke very clearly about his death and resurrection. Look at with me Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Luke 18, verse 31. Luke says that Jesus was with the 12, and Jesus said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Maybe I should repeat that again. And maybe Jesus day, maybe, maybe Jesus did. After flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Do you think Jesus could have been more clear about what was going to happen to him when he went to Jerusalem? He said he was going to suffer, be flogged, spit upon, killed, and then on the third day, rise. Now, Luke is not the only one who tells us this. Mark says it, and Jesus actually alludes to the fact that he's going to die and rise in, in a several different ways. And several of them are just as clear as this. 
all of you, if you were walking away today and, um, and somebody asked you, so what did Jesus say? Uh, well, he said he's, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and on the third day he's going to rise. That's what he said. And yet, we just read that the disciples are huddled in a room together in fear and that the women had gone to the tomb in grieving and mourning, seeking to find a dead corpse. Maybe it should have been different that day. But maybe you're saying, well, you know, give, give, them, give them some slack. Like, you know, they, they, they've gone through a lot in the last couple of days, which is true. And I, I no doubt would have done the same thing. But look at Matthew 27, verse 62. Because it's not just the followers of Christ who knew this. Chapter 27, verse 62. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, that's Saturday, okay, that's yesterday, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, and they said to him, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. You see, it wasn't just the disciples who should have known that on the third day he will rise because even those who were against Jesus even those who spit upon Jesus and gave him the flogging, they knew what he had said. And they knew something about the power of who he was, that they wanted to make sure this tomb was sealed. On the third day, I will rise, Jesus said. You see, that morning, the women went to the tomb expecting to see nothing, and yet they saw the most glorious of things the risen Savior. This morning, we have come here to gather and worship, coming expecting to see the risen Savior, and yet, he's not here in the flesh right now, is he? He's ascended to heaven, and yet, the way you guys just worshiped five minutes ago tells me that you have seen and beheld something that has stirred your heart to such a place that you are willing to give all things for him. You have seen and beheld something, but it wasn't with these eyes, was it? John says that he has written these things down so that you might believe. This morning, we have seen something in his word that has changed our lives. We sing a song often called Man of Sorrows, and I love the one line that says, See the stone is rolled away, behold the empty tomb, Hallelujah, God be praised. He's risen from the grave. I love that line. See the stone, behold the empty tomb, and yet I've seen neither. I've been to Israel. I've actually seen the tomb where they supposedly think he was, and it looks empty to me, but I don't know if it's the right tomb. But the Bible says that we are to see the tomb, to see it and behold and realize he is not there. Do you ever, have you ever wondered, why, is the, why was the tombstone rolled at all? Like, Jesus did not need a stone rolled away for him to exit the tomb. We just read that Jesus came into a room with his disciples and the doors were locked. 
Jesus has a glorified body that is beyond the need of doors and keys. Jesus just enters. When Jesus decides to rise, he rises. When Jesus decides to exit a tomb with a thousand-ton stone in front of it, he does it. But the reason why the tombstone was rolled away was not for his convenience. It was so that we would have reason to know and believe and to trust that he is not there. That's why the tombstone was rolled away. Because God loves giving his people something to see and behold and something to proclaim. No less today than that morning, God wants, us to give, God wants to give us something to see. In fact, most of our time spent here in worship, we are praying with our eyes closed, we're singing with our eyes closed, and most of our time should be fo focused on the word of God, reading and hearing. We didn't come here this morning to see anything with eyes. We came to hear something and to sing something and to be amazed and have our hearts thrilled with God in worship. That's why Paul will say faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This last week, most of you, if you were like me, you have spent the world out there since last Sunday and everything out there in this world is slowly fading. Have you ever noticed that? The shirts that I used to wear five years ago no longer look quite as bright. The clothes that I wear, the car that you're driving, you probably won't be driving it in another 10 years. Some of you, maybe not in a year. It's so old or it needs replacement, you gotta get something new. It's rusting, it's tarnishing, it's breaking, it's molding, right? It's decaying. This world is not a permanent place as it is, as you see it. And yes, you, yet you just spent the last six days living as if the things in this world are permanent, but they're not. Some of you may have spent the last year since you've come to worship here, and you've been living in the world as if those things out there will give you the greatest life now. But Jesus is calling you this morning to remind you that there are things that last for eternity and they are found in him. Don't live for the things of the world that fade, the things that moth and rust destroy. 50 years from now, most of us are gonna be gone. 100 years from now, most likely, unless you live really long, you're not gonna be here, right? This whole room in 100 years, we're all gone. Like death is going to have its place. But the resurrection says that there's something greater that has overcome death, that this is not the end. But these bodies will fade. They will die. We get old. The older I get, I'm only 39, but the older I get, the more kinks I get in my back, the more I hurt myself, even when I'm sleeping. This morning is a call for you to trust the promises of a riven Savior who has de defeated death and decay and to trust him more than your perceptions or based upon what you can see. For as Paul says, we are called to walk by faith, not by sight. What I am saying, why am I saying all of this? Because this morning we are looking at the story of Thomas. And everybody knows Thomas as the doubter because he struggled to believe in the risen Jesus. And he gets labeled in that way, rightfully or wrongfully. However, let me tell you, 
He's not the only one on that morning who was struggling to believe all that the prophets had spoken, all that Jesus had said in the last three years, and all that they had seen even on that day. Thomas doubted. He got a bad reputation. But who of us in here can say anything different? I would imagine that most of you this morning in some capacity over this day or the past six days, have struggled to believe the truths of Christ. That's why you turn to sin. That's why we're sinners. Because in the moment of our sin, we are choosing to, dis to disbelieve the words of God that he's actually better, and we are choosing to think that something else is. That's why we sin. That's why we do the things that we do. I'm imagining that there are some of you here this morning who have struggled to believe, and all you want is to be found. That's why we love songs like Amazing Grace, which talk about lost being found and the blind seeing. The story of Thomas is a good story, but it's less about a man and his doubt and much more about a man who is found by his Savior. And I would imagine that this morning, you need to hear that. This story is not about somebody who struggles to believe. It is about a savior who is so good. This is what makes Resurrection Sunday so beautiful because our God has risen from the grave and he didn't just ascend immediately to heaven. He goes to the ones who he knows have already doubted him, um, denied him, and have disbelieved his word, and he goes to them. And he appears to them, even when they're huddled behind locked doors, as some of you might be this morning. The risen Savior pursues you. The Apostle John has included this story in his gospel account, not to highlight the shortcomings of one man, but to glorify and magnify the glory of another. Not to placard the streets with Thomas's failures, but to put a spotlight on the Savior. For this is what the Apostle John has as his goal in writing his gospel, to help those of us who were not eyewitnesses to believe and put our eyes on him. That's why he says in verse 31, look at this with me. Verse 31, John says, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? It's because it is that simple. Jesus did the hard work. You get the gift of eternal life for all those who turn from sin and believe. So what does this mean? It means that the account of Thomas was included to foster belief, not to make you feel worse for your own struggles to believe. It was included not to paint doubt as something only people like Thomas struggle with, but instead to show that the only antidote to unbelief is a mercifully patient, generously gracious, risen and appearing Lord. As Lord, he is not intimidated by your failures, nor by your struggle to believe. Let me say that again. As Lord, he is not intimidated by your failures, nor by your struggle to believe, and he's not put off by how weak or sinful you think you are. In fact, you and I tend to think that Jesus should be disappointed with us, agitated, or at least a little bit a bit annoyed. Maybe just for a, just for a little bit, he's just got to get out of our presence for a little bit. 
Do you know why you think that? Is because that's the way you treat other people sometimes. That's the way I treat other people sometimes, even if I don't say it. I think, oh man, my kids are driving me nuts. I've just got to go into the other room. Jesus is not like that. Praise God, our God is not like that. When you are struggling in your unbelief, his heart leaps towards you. In fact, there's not a tomb, there is not death, and there's not a locked door that is going to keep him from coming into your room and standing in your midst and declaring to you, peace be with you. Now, just in case you are um, struggling to believe that the Lord would be patient with you, or maybe struggling to believe that he wouldn't just push you away, I want to give you some answers to that and show you that when the Lord appears, he seeks to gather his people towards him, not to reject them. So the first thing I want you to see is that when the risen Christ appeared on that day, he gave of himself. Look at our story. It's evening time. There's a lot that's already happened in this story beforehand. They've seen the empty tomb. Peter and John have been there. They've seen the empty tomb but the doors are locked and they're huddled in fear. And it's not just Thomas who is struggling to believe. It's everyone. Let me show you this because this is amazing. This like brings me to worship. Okay, Mark 16 verse 11. Mary Magdalene, as you know, has just encountered the risen Jesus. Like she's the first one to see him. She gets so excited. The Lord says, go back and tell my brothers. Go tell them what you've seen. She runs. She tells them. I don't know how long the distance was, but she gets there. Mark says, they would not believe it. Luke 24, 11 recounts the same thing. Same story. But Luke says, these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Luke 24, he goes on, and you've got two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. Right? These guys kind of appear out of nowhere. Right? There are these two guys walking on the road to Emmaus. Jesus appears to them, though they, can't, they don't recognize him at first. And they tell him about the events that have been occurring. And Jesus says to them, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. In Mark chapter 16, verse 12, these two guys, after encountering Jesus, after Jesus opens the scriptures to them, they get enamored and amazed. Like, whoa, Jesus has been with us. We've got to go tell the disciples. And so they take the trek back from Emmaus all the way to Jerusalem. They get there expecting that all of heaven is going to erupt. And guess what they hear? We don't believe you. Mark 16 verse 12 says, they did not believe them. Luke 24, 38 says that while the disciples were still talking to these two guys, Jesus shows up. Thomas is not there. And Jesus says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Mark chapter 16, verse 14. Same encounter. Jesus is standing there and Mark says, he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Incredible. Doesn't that lead you to just want to worship? <laughs> 
everybody is on the same playing field. In fact, it's not just these guys, but all throughout scripture. In fact, just a couple weeks later, the disciples are with Jesus in Galilee. They're standing on the mountain. Jesus is about to give the great commission. And one verse before that, Jesus, it's, Jesus is standing there. The disciples, it says, are worshiping him. And then it says, but some doubted. All throughout scripture, we see this same thing. Adam and Eve, they're walking with God in the cool of the garden, sinlessly. They hear a counter story to what God has told them, and they doubt that one, and they hold on to a lie. Israel is rescued from slavery out of Egypt. You guys know the story, most of you. God brings 10 plagues upon Pharaoh. He rescues them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, splits the Red Sea in half. They walk on dry land. They get to Mount Sinai. They're beholding God on, this, on the mountain. He's there. He's in his glory. The earth is shaking. Trumpets are blaring. Moses is getting a face that's shining. God leads them from there. They have bread that falls from heaven to feed them. Water comes out of the rock, and God leads them to the promised land. And what happens? The majority of the first generation dies in the wilderness in their unbelief even though they have seen wonders that you and I wish, I wish I could have been there. It would have been so much easier to believe. Have you ever thought that? I wish I could have just been there. Then I wouldn't struggle in my disbelief. Yes, you would. Because that's what the Bible says. That's the, that's the whole story of scripture is that even though when we see things with our physical eyes, our hearts are so dead and so bent towards sin that we do not believe even if it smacks us upside the head. <laughs> Jesus spends three years with his disciples, feeding the 5,000, raising Lazarus to dead not too many days before that, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Everybody's crying, Hosanna. Right? Last week, we celebrated him as king coming, coming on a donkey, entering Jerusalem. Guess what? Next chapter, verse 37 of chapter 12 of John, says this. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Seeing is not believing. Though this world will tell you in every single way that it is. But seeing is not believing. The cure for our doubt is having an encounter with the risen Lord who is mercifully gracious and generous to us in his grace. What the disciples that day needed was for Jesus simply to come to them and speak and help them. And that's exactly what he does. He says, peace be with you. He enters the room and he declares peace to them. These are the guys who disbelieve. Some of them have denied him. They've all betrayed him just a couple days before. Jesus could very well have said, man, I'm done with these guys. I spent three years with them. They're always getting it wrong. I've spoken so clearly to them. And still, here we are. Jesus is so familiar with your weakness so familiar with my own weakness. And he comes as the comforter to comfort us. It doesn't mean he's not going to have hard words, but he stands in our midst 
And then it says that he showed him his hands and his side. He said, if you're still struggling to believe, here it is. Like, here's the scars. What sweet words to hear from the voice of the one in whom you had deserted. Some of you need to hear these words, peace be with you. These are the kinds of words that when you know the implications, they have the power to expel all doubts and put at ease all fear and create gladness in your heart. In fact, that's apparently what happens because as soon as Jesus shows up, shows himself to them, the disciples say, uh, John says, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. The nails that pierced him, they left visible reminders of the hostility of the world. But the scars that remain are reminders that not even death can silence our joy in Christ because he has given himself for us. So how can you know that your struggle to believe will not push your Savior away? Because when he appeared on that day, he reminded his disciples that he had indeed given himself for them, putting himself on the cross instead of them. And you and I here this morning, we deserve no less than what Jesus got for our sins. Jesus took the sin that so easily entangles, that clings so closely to our own hearts, and he bore the weight of that on the cross. And he decided voluntarily to put himself in that position. That's the kind of savior you have this morning. He is not a savior who's just up there in the sky, but he is a savior who has come down into this world to show you, this is what I've done for you. Peace be with you. The second way that you can be assured of this truth that Christ and God will not push you away is that when the risen Christ appeared on that day, he invited inquiry. He invited them to see. He invited them to hear. Now, what some of you may have noticed is that Thomas was not there when Jesus first appeared. We have no idea why Thomas left. He was there when the two guys from Emmaus came back, but within a couple minutes, he must have left. And the Bible doesn't say why, but he's not there. And Luke records that as they were saying these things, that Jesus appears, um, but then Thomas comes back on the scene. So in verse, verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him when he had returned, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas says, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, lest you think that Thomas is just being obstinate, which he may very well have been, we have to remember at this point that all 10 of the other disciples have seen Jesus at this point, including several women, including these two guys from Emmaus. Thomas is now one of the, he is the only remaining disciple who has not seen the risen Lord, except for Judas. So Thomas is now in the category and he's in the company of Judas, not physically, but both of them have not seen the risen Lord. And Thomas must know and realize everybody else has seen him. Why hasn't Jesus revealed himself to me? Like, 
Why wasn't I there? Why didn't he approach me? What, there's something wrong? Did, are my doubts too deep? Or is my sin too big? Maybe he knows. Maybe he knows what's in here. I have no idea. The scriptures don't tell us exactly what is in, Jesus, in Judas uh, Thomas's heart. But I can imagine that it was confusing to know that all of your friends have seen him and you haven't. It's no wonder that in his, in his pain and in his pride or whatever it is, he says, unless I see his hands, place my finger into the market of nails, put my hand inside, I will never believe. Forget you guys. But this is the best part. Because even though Thomas verbally made such a declaration of unbelief, Jesus still comes to him. Eight days later, it says, as they were gathered yet again, Jesus comes to the disciples and to Thomas in the exact same way, speaking the exact same words and, and displaying the exact same scars. Jesus says in verse 26, he says, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So Thomas did. Jesus uses the same verbs that Thomas used when he made this declaration of unbelief to see and to place. You see, your Savior this morning has come to give you something to see. And what we see is a Savior who has bled and died for us, and he has the scars to prove it. And he is more than willing to prove himself to you. There is no question too great. There is no evidence too big that the Lord Jesus cannot provide. He doesn't have to. He could have ascended to heaven and just gone right, right to heaven, left an angelic host to declare to, to, to everybody, he's risen, he's not here. But that's not what he did. Jesus came and he appeared to his people. In fact, the Bible tells us that he appeared to over 500 at one time. Because Christ wants to give us something to see. Which leads me to my third point. When the risen Christ appeared on that day, he invites us to believe. Thomas's doubts were big, and his heart was slow to believe all that Jesus had did and said. But while his heart was slow to believe, he was very quick to grasp the implications of what it meant for Jesus to be alive, standing before him. And he declares, my Lord and my God. And in those words, Thomas gives us one of the most clear and succinct um, phrases and declarations of who Christ is in the Gospels. Like, it, you can't get away from it. He is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is God. And Thomas sees it. And then Jesus says, have you believed because you have seen me, Thomas? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I think most of us here this morning, we are like that, right? We are those who have believed even though we haven't seen. And Jesus says that those who believe without seeing are blessed. 
Some of you here this morning, whether in the restlessness of your own heart or in plain sight, have said things and done things that betray your own hard-heartedness towards God. You may very well have said things like, I will never believe. For whatever reason, maybe it was out of confusion, maybe it was out of pride, maybe it was out of selfishness, maybe it was just because you didn't know what else to do, because you just can't see it. Whatever it is, Jesus in this story makes himself appear. And he appears to us, not just in, um, not just like the disciples had it where he appeared visibly, he appears to us in his word and by his spirit. John says at the end, he says that these things are written that you may believe so that you might have life in his name. If you want to know where life is found, it's found in Jesus. But there's a warning here as well that is implied because if life is in his name through belief and faith in Christ, then to stay in unbelief and to stay in that, opposition, that place of opposition against your Savior will only lead to death. Jesus said so. In fact, one of, our, one of the most well-known scriptures, John 3.16, in the context of it, he says this. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus calls us to believe, and he says that whoever believes in me, you will not perish, but you will have everlasting life. But on the flip side, Whoever does not receive his words and does not believe in him stands condemned already. Either Jesus gets the death that you deserve on the cross or it's still coming. Either the condemnation of all of your sin goes on Jesus or it goes on you for all of eternity. But Jesus stands with a free gift saying, all those who believe will find life in my name. Please don't wait until you see something. You have seen enough this morning because we see Jesus in his words. And John calls us to believe based upon these words. There is coming a day when it will be too late, but today is not that day. It wasn't too late on that day for the disciples. Today, we believe on account of what is spoken of Christ in his word. He is a good savior. But I have a question for you. Maybe there are some of you who are struggling this morning still to believe. And you're looking at the savior 
and you have doubts. What is there that could keep you from such a generous offer? Eternal life or to go in the way of death and condemnation? The Bible says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you afraid he might not be able to save you? Do you doubt his notice of you? What is there that you could desire in a Savior that is not found in Jesus? What is there that is more beautiful? Is Christ not glorious enough? He is the King, and he is crowned with glory, and we sang of him earlier as the King who is enthroned in the throne room right now. And even though you can't see it with your eyes right now, there is coming a day where you will see him. In fact, the Bible says that he is still in his glorified body. And when we see him, he still bears the scars that he took for you. He still bears it. In fact, in Revelation, John, the same author, is talking about the future and what is coming. And he says that he beheld a, a lamb but a lamb who is slain standing before the throne. 27 times John describes this lamb who is slain. And for all of eternity, our worship will be centered on him, the lamb who is slain. And someday you will get to see face to face with your sight, the scars that he before, bore for you. But today, is the day that we are called to believe on him, even though you haven't seen it with your eyes. But some of you may have uh, another obstacle. Maybe you think that you're just not good enough for him. You say, my faith is too weak. I've believed before and then I've been let down. I've struggled, I've fallen away. I've gone my own way. There's no way that the Christ would want to pursue me. My sin is too heavy and the burdens I carry are too great. John is calling you today to put away all such doubts. As one well-known Puritan pastor put it, he says, even a weak faith can lay hold of a strong Christ because it is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the strength of the object of your faith that saves you. Hallelujah for that. Weak, struggling faith that is bound to a strong Savior is all you need. Whether your belief in him is strong this morning or whether it is stumbling and struggling, Christ holds his hands out to you, ready and willing to save you. Not because of your goodness, not because you've done something extra special by coming here this morning, but because he is the God who saves. And he determined before the foundation of the world to pursue a bride and a people and to save them for himself. Can you conceive of anything lacking in Christ's death and resurrection for you? Let's be like David, who in Psalm 63, he says, 
He was in a dry and weary land where there was no water. He was fainting. He was thirsty. Enemies were surrounding him. And he says, God, my soul clings to you, but your right hand upholds me. Jesus is calling you to believe today, not based upon something you've seen, but what you have heard. Peter says it the best. First Peter chapter one. I love this verse. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If joy inexpressible is offered to you right now, even though you can't see him with your eyes, how much more will joy be inexpressible and filled with glory when you see him face to face? Because someday our sight will become actual sight. Our faith will have been realized. The object of our faith that we believe and hold on to by faith now, we will see him again. And when we see him, we will marvel if we believe, if we trust him with our lives today. This morning, if you know that you need a savior in Jesus, I welcome you to talk to somebody. There's gonna be some here on my, uh, my left here that would love to talk with you and pray with you. But do not wait another year until the next Resurrection Sunday. Don't even wait a day because we do not know when the Lord will return. Let me close with a blessing. Just as Jesus blessed his disciples and he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us if you have believed this morning. May a dying Savior's love, a risen Savior's power, an appearing Savior's peace, and a returning Savior's glory be the joy and comfort of your hearts this day and forever. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning and we are in awe of you because you have been so patient with us, so kind to us, even in our doubt, in our disbelief, our struggle, even in denying of you, even in the things that we have said in the quietness of our own hearts, Lord, things that should put us to death because of its treason. You have come to us in Christ to save us. And Lord, I wanna know that more. And I want everyone here to know that, and especially those who have not seen you yet, who still struggle. Lord, would you bless them? Would you bless them with eyes to see and behold you? Would you come to them and appear and meet them through your word and by your spirit? We pray all these things in Christ's name, amen.